Part 3 Observances Adding Layers It is perhaps surprising that the majority of the conventions that inform a monk's daily life are found in the protocols, allowances and injunctions of the Khandakas rather than in the rules of the Batimoka proper. For example, the highly detailed procedures for formal meetings of the Sangha, including the ordination and uposata ceremonies, appear in the Khandakas as do the steps to be taken in dealing with disputes. The Khandakas contain most of the instructions regarding a monk's relationship to the four requisites robes, alms food, dwelling place, and medicines. Most of the fine points of monastic etiquette are also to be found here. A fourfold division of the monk's training in moral virtue appears in the commentarial tradition. While the first of these deals with restraint within the boundaries laid down in the Batimoka, the remaining three, the virtues of sense restraint, of pure livelihood, and of wise use of the requisites, are primarily in the Khandakas. Another set of practices, given particular emphasis in the training at Watbapong, known as the 14 duties, the Kichawata, is also detailed in the Khandakas. The Bhatimoka is mostly concerned with unskillful actions and speech that monks should avoid. The skillful actions and speech that they should cultivate in their place are usually only implied. In the injunctions found in the Khandakas, there is a much greater balance between things to be avoided and those recommended or acknowledged as legitimate by the Buddha's words, Monks, I allow you. The number of injunctions is so considerable that once, when asked how many there were altogether, Long Po replied, Zillions. Given that so many injunctions are mentioned in the texts, and that not all of them are free from ambiguity, it is understandable that variations of emphasis and interpretation appear even within the Thai forest tradition. Whereas a lay observer might see these differences as minor, they can feel significant to the monks as they contribute to their sense of lineage. There are, for example, two ways in which Wat Bapong monks may be distinguished visually from other forest monks. Firstly, they shave their heads twice a month rather than the usual once. In the Vinaya, the only specifications are a maximum allowable length of head hair. This more frequent shaving derived from Long Po's view that by the end of a month, a monk's hair could be almost as long as a layman's and look unseemly. Secondly, what Bapong monks wear the lower robe in a unique way, rolling rather than folding the cloth. The Kandaka text is unclear on the method of wearing this robe. This style was a result of Long Po's conviction, born of his studies, that the monks of old wore their lower robes in such a way. Luang Po adopted these two practices for himself, and when he established Wat Bapong, they became standard for the Sangha. As a byproduct, these small but distinctive variations from the norm strengthened the sense of identity amongst Luang Po's disciples.
An idea of the comprehensiveness of the monastic observances may be gained by focusing on some of the practice prescribed for use of the bowl and robe. A monk possesses eight basic requisites, the three main robes, an arms bowl, a cloth waistband, a needle and thread for mending robes, a razor to shave hair and beard, and a water filter. Of these eight, it is the bowl and robes that have come to be emblematic of the monk. The monk appears to the world with a shaven head and clad in simple, unadorned robes that signify his renunciation of physical adornment. He carries a bowl signifying that he is an arms mendicant, one who has surrendered all control over his physical well-being to the kindness of others. The sheer number of the training rules and observances governing a monk's relationship with his bowl and robes keeps it in the forefront of his mind. By having to turn his mind to them again and again as objects of mindfulness, he cannot help but develop, over time, a keen sense of respect and appreciation for them. He can never become complacent in his use of bowl and robes. Robes Practices relating to the robes demonstrate the way that the observances dovetail with the Patimokha. Training rules govern how a monk may acquire cloth and how long he may store it before making it into a robe. One rule stipulates that a monk must never be physically separated from his three robes at dawn. As a result, the awareness of the location of his three robes gradually becomes a part of the monk's consciousness. A monk must also swiftly patch any hole in his robe. To encourage diligence, Luang Por taught that any hole large enough for a rice grain to pass through should be dealt with on the day that it appeared. Observances, meanwhile, provide guidelines for the making of the robe and the right way of wearing and taking care of it. Luang Por expected all of his disciples to learn how to cut, sew and dye their own robes. He considered the making of robes an essential element of the forest Sangha tradition. It was strictly forbidden for monks to accept gifts of ready-to-wear robes purchased from a shop. Accepting such robes was seen as undermining a core tradition. He taught that making one's own robes promoted a spirit of care, self-sufficiency and wholesome pride in the robe. Wearing commercially produced robes, on the other hand, led to heedlessness and a lack of respect for this core requisite, exalted in the texts as the banner of the Arahants. Only after a monk had patched his robe over and over again would he pluck up the courage to ask Lung Po for permission to make a new one. If permitted, his next stop would be the monastery cloth store, where he would request a bolt of white cotton cloth. Cutting the cloth for a Buddhist monk's robes is straightforward. Each robe consists of a simple rectangle of cloth. While the lower robe is often made of a single piece of cloth, the upper robe and the outer robe each consist of a number of small rectangles sewn separately and then joined together. A pattern of bars and crossbars is sewn onto the cloth the design of which the Buddha is said to have based upon the appearance of the rice fields of northeast India. 
This pattern divides robes into seven or nine major sections. A wide hem is then sewn all the way around the robe. Tags are sewn into the robe at the corners and neck of the two larger robes. These help to hold the robe together neatly when the monk wears it covering both shoulders on the occasion such as arms round when he leaves the monastery. In the early days at Wat Bapong, when the monks sewed by hand, making robes was a communal activity. After some years, pedal sewing machines began to be offered to the monastery, allowing each monk to sew his own robe. Although, in the last few years, sewing robes by hand has again become popular at Wat Bapong and its branch monasteries. After the monk has cut and sewn the white cotton cloth, he gives the new robe its distinctive ochre colour with a dye produced by boiling chips of the heartwood of the jackfruit tree. Once the monk has completed the dyeing, he stores the robe carefully until the next suitable occasion at which he may formally request his new robe from the Sangha. Having received the Sangha's blessing, he recites the words relinquishing his old robe. He may only possess one of each of the three main robes and then, reciting another Pali formula, determines the new robe for use. His final task, a reminder not to become attached to the beauty of the new robe, is to make upon it, these days usually with a ballpoint pen, a small ritual disfigurement. The robe needs much careful attention. Having no fixing agent added to the dye, a new robe's colour tends to run easily when, for example, it is sweated upon or, disastrously, rained upon. The astringent properties of the jackfruit dye allow a weak solution of the dye to be effective in washing robes. In fact, it is the only viable washing agent. Detergent must be avoided as it drains the colour and makes the robe smell unpleasant. For the first couple of months, the new robe must be washed with an amount of water just sufficient to moisten the whole robe, without any excess to prevent loss of colour. While drying the robe, it must be constantly moved up and down on the clothesline to prevent too much unfixed colour dripping downwards towards the hem, and to make sure that the clothesline leaves no mark on the robe. One of the less popular observances one that Luang Po inherited from Luang Bu Man, required Wat Bapong monks to wear all three robes whenever they left the monastery. This required the two-layer outer robe being worn on top of the upper robe, reassuringly warm on winter mornings, but an extremely uncomfortable experience in the hot season. It was a common sight in March and April to see monks returning from their arms round at seven in the morning their robes already patched with sweat. If a monk complained about how many observances there were to bear in mind, Luang Por explained that they were the means by which mindfulness was grounded in the body in daily life. More than that, he would explain, they acted as a buffer, preventing unwholesome mental habits and behaviours from taking root in the monk's life. A precise attention, respect, and care for possessions did much to keep the mind in a wholesome state. Don't think it's a minor matter. Do you see those mangoes? The fruits are very small, but in future 
they will be big. The big grows from the small. When you get into bad habits, it's disastrous. There were also rules and observances governing the use of other allowable items of clothing and general use. The monks wore a simple shirt-like piece of cloth called an unksa, another rectangle of cloth which was draped over the left shoulder and attached under the exposed right arm by a tag. A bathing cloth was worn beneath the lower robe. This piece of cloth would be kept on while bathing from the communal water jars and washed out afterwards. A monk possessed two of these cloths and alternated their use. In the morning, the fresh, newly washed cloth served to dry the bowl after the meal. A square sitting cloth would be used in all formal situations. The alms bowl In the Buddha's time, monks' bowls were generally made of clay. A moment of carelessness was all it took for one to break and many injunctions were laid down to minimize the occasions when that might occur. Although by Luang Por's day, the majority of bowls were made of iron, and these days they are mostly stainless steel, far more durable than the monks who eat out of them, the original rules are still carefully observed. Nowadays, the purpose is not to protect the monks' bowls so much as their mindfulness. Luang Po taught the monks that they should handle their bowl as if they had the Buddha's head in their hands. They were to be circumspect before picking up or putting down the bowl. This was more than a mere ritual. Although iron bowls were much more resilient than clay bowls, carelessness could easily lead to chipping the bowl's surface and the prospect of rusting. A bowl was never to be put down on a hard surface. If placed on a raised surface such as a bench, the bowl had to be placed far enough from the edge that it might not be inadvertently knocked to the ground. No hard object was to be placed inside the bowl unless wrapped in cloth. Lemongrass or thou leaves were used to wash the bowl. The monk was to wash it in silence and with full attention. Kneeling down, he was to wipe the bowl with the cloth and then place it on its bamboo stand in the sun for a few minutes to ensure that it was bone dry. The bowl was to be kept in the monk's kuti in a respectful place. If not underneath the small shrine, then near the point at which he placed his head when sleeping, and with the lid slightly open so as to allow the air to circulate through it and prevent the accumulation of unpleasant odours. Luang Po emphasized how important it was for postulants and novices to learn the correct procedures by watching the more experienced monks. He himself would constantly monitor the monks' practice of the observances and any carelessness he noticed would be referenced in his next Dhamma talk. To prevent these constant reminders from becoming too tiresome, every now and again, he would draw upon his fund of humorous anecdotes to enshrine the points he wished to make in an easily remembered and enjoyable form. One such story concerned an unfortunate monk's adventure with a rat. There was once a certain monk who liked to keep his fresh bathing cloth, used to dry the bowl after washing it, in his arms bowl. One day, rather than mindfully leaving the bowl lid just slightly ajar, he pushed it open carelessly, leaving a wide gap between the bowl lid and the bowl. 
in the middle of the night, a rat climbed into the bowl and went to sleep on the soft cloth bed it found there. The next morning, it so happened that the monk overslept. He woke to realize that dawn had passed. It was already time for alms round. Afraid of being late and having to fast until the following morning, he threw on his robes as quickly as he could. He grabbed his bowl and rushed out of his kuti to catch up with the other monks. He made it to the edge of the village, breathless, just in time to take his place in the row of monks. But as he opened his bowl to receive the first offering, the startled rat jumped up from its bed, out of the bowl and into the midst of the line of ladies, squatting on the ground, holding their plates of rice. There was panic, and there were shrieks, and then there were giggles. Once calm had been restored, the village women put their rice into the monks' bowls. It was only as he left the first line of donors behind that the monk realized that his bathing cloth was still at the bottom of the bowl, now covered with sticky rice. Luang Po constantly pointed to a link between an intelligent attention to the monastic observances and etiquette and the development of more subtle, wholesome qualities. The principle he propounded was, in essence, that if monks looked after the spiritual pennies, the pounds would look after themselves. Develop a habit of care and precision in external matters, and the same habit would begin to flourish in the inner world. Requesting Requisites All the offerings received by monks at Wat Pong were relinquished to a central store. When a monk needed a requisite, new torch batteries, soap, toothpaste or razor blades, he would request it from the monastery storekeeper, who was usually, and not coincidentally, one of the gruffest and most intimidating monks in the monastery. The storekeeper was empowered to refuse to hand over requisites if there was evidence that monks were using them extravagantly. Frugality was considered a hallmark of the true forest monk and was much praised by Luang Po. The recollection that all of their possessions were gifts of faith to be used with a clear awareness of purpose featured in the verses chanted by every monk in the morning and evening services. One monk recalled, During the time that I lived with Luang Po, there weren't any shortages of the important requisites, but the distribution of them was very strict. If your robe wasn't falling to pieces, you weren't given permission to change it. It was a little more relaxed for senior monks, but for the junior monks and novices, or visiting monks, it was especially strict. Luang Po emphasized that we train to be moderate in our needs, and he lived no differently than anyone else. He wore the same quality robes, and there was nothing much to distinguish his kutis furnishings from anyone else's. Even though his family lived close by, he never asked them for anything for himself. Whatever he was offered, he shared with the Sangha. This communal system was aimed at promoting fairness and equality in the use of requisites and Luang Po saw it as vital to the maintenance of social harmony. By forbidding monks from accepting offerings, even when specifically intended for them, he did much to prevent jealousy and competition for lay support amongst his disciples. As the number of branch monasteries increased, 
surplus requisites were funneled to them, preventing Wat Bapong from ever becoming too luxurious as its fame and attendant wealth increased. The advent of stainless steel bowls in the mid-1970s created a fresh object of desire for younger members of the Sangha. The new bowls, free from the threat of rust, were easier to look after. They were much lighter than the old iron bowls, and they seemed cool and modern. Almost everybody wanted one. But if a monk made a request to replace his old bowl out of a hope for an upgrade to one of the new stainless steel bowls, rather than from genuine need, he would come to regret it. In such cases, Luang Po was known to order that the monk be given the ugliest, second-hand iron bowl in the store. On one occasion, a monk must have been unable to conceal his chagrin at this turn of events, because Luang Po, observing him, said, The only ugly thing here is the greed you've shown. Monk's cravings for a particular type of cloth, a particular kind of arms bowl, a crocheted arms bowl cover, or even a particular brand of spoon may seem bizarre at first and then even a little sad. It prompts the question, what is the value of renunciation of worldly possessions if the renunciant merely transfers his attachments to more humble objects? Surely, attachment is attachment, whatever its object. And if that is so, aren't monks deceiving themselves? Luang Po did not consider a drastically simplified lifestyle to be liberating in itself. He knew well enough that the tendency towards attachment is far too strongly embedded in the unenlightened mind to be so simply bypassed. But a life paired back to essentials did play an important part in the training he was providing. Firstly, because it was a key element in sustaining the distinctive culture and identity of the renunciant forest monk. Secondly, because the nature of attachment, its impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and impersonality is revealed far more readily when focused on a few simple objects than when dispersed amongst the wide variety of desirable things available in lay life. Thus, Luang Po constantly urged monks to keep reviewing the nature of their relationship with the requisites and to be alert to the arising of defilement in order to give them a perspective on these attachments. For the monks who followed his advice, coarse attachments to good quality requisites tended to fade away quite quickly. After a few years, most monks would look back at their robe or bowl obsessions with self-deprecating good humour. Reflections on the responsible use of the requisites were a staple of Luang Po's regular pep talks to the monks. Householders make their living with the sweat of their brow, through trials and adversity, and they still give up a portion of their income to buy food and other requisites for the Sangha. If you took that for granted, he said, if you took it to be your right and use their offerings selfishly or mindlessly, you are creating very bad gummer indeed. A Constitution Of all the observances that were woven into the daily life at Wat Bapong, a number of them were key in defining the Wat Bapong culture and principles of training. 
Once the monastery had been firmly established, Luang Po formalized these observances into a list of Sangha regulations. These were drawn from Patimoka training rules, Kandaka observances, as well as Thai monastic tradition and personal experience. Over the following years, this list, neatly framed, would hang on the walls of the Dhamma halls of every monastery affiliated to Wat Bapong. It ensured a uniformity of practice amongst monasteries far apart from each other and given a fair measure of autonomy. Falling away from this standard endangered the monastery's affiliation. Sangha Regulations 1. It is forbidden for monks and novices to make requests from anyone other than blood relatives or from those who have offered a formal invitation, pawarana. It is forbidden to have connections with lay people or ordained members of other religions that are hostile to Buddhism. 2. It is forbidden to talk about the low arts or study them, to predict lottery numbers, to make holy water, to act as a doctor or an astrologer, or to make and distribute amulets and lucky charms. 3. Unless completely unavoidable, it is forbidden for a monk with less than five reigns to travel alone. If a junior monk must make a journey, he should be accompanied by a monk with more than five reigns. 4. Monks should always confer with the Sangha or the senior monk before embarking on any personal projects. Only when it has been agreed on, as in accordance with Dhamma and Vinaya, should steps be taken. Monks should not act upon their own authority. 5. Monks should be content with the lodging allotted to them. They should keep it clean and sweep the paths leading to it. 6. Monks should attend to the activities of the Sangha in harmony, meeting and dispersing in unison. Monks should not make themselves an object of the Sangha's antipathy by being deceitful, by seeking to evade admonishment, or by making excuses for errors. 7. Idle chatter is forbidden during alms round, and while washing bowls, sweeping the monastery, hauling water, bathing, preparing the dining hall, washing robes, or listening to Dhamma talks. Monks should pay attention to whatever task they are working on. 8. After the meal, monks should help to sweep the dining hall and clean up before bowing to the triple gem in unison and taking their belongings back to their kutis in a peaceful manner. 9. Monks should be frugal in their needs for conversation eating, sleeping and outgoing exuberance. Monks should maintain a vigorous wakefulness. They should help to nurse sick monks with loving kindness. 10. It is forbidden for monks to receive money or to have anyone receive it for them. It is forbidden to buy and sell things or to barter. 11. All gifts offered to the Sangha should be kept in common. When a monk is in need of anything, let the Sangha supply him appropriately. 12. It is forbidden to gather together in groups and socialize, whether by day or night, in a public area 
or in a kuti, except when necessary. Even in such a case, do not be one who takes pleasure in society and revelry. 13. Receiving or sending letters, documents or parcels must be announced to the Sangha or to the senior monk. Only after receiving permission can the article be received or sent. 14. Monks or novices wishing to come and practice in this monastery must have a letter of permission from their preceptor or previous teacher and must first have transferred their affiliation in their monk's identity book. 15. Visiting monks and novices should show their monk's identity book to the sangha or senior monk on their arrival. They may stay for no more than three nights unless there are necessary reasons to stay longer. The sangha reserves the right to deal accordingly to transgressors of these regulations. Issued on the 2nd of October, 1957, Pra Ajancha, Senior Monk. The Daily Schedule The Buddha taught the Discourse on Non-Decline, which is recorded in the Diga Nikaya, Sutta 16, and in the Anguttara Nikaya 7s, Suttas 21 to 23. As long as the monks assemble often, and hold frequent assemblies. Only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. As long as the monks meet in harmony, adjourn in harmony, and conduct the affairs of the Sangha in harmony, only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. As long as the monks do not decree anything that has not been decreed, or abolish anything that has already been decreed, but undertake and follow the training rules as they have been decreed. Only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. As long as the monks honour, respect, esteem and venerate those monks who are elders, of long standing, long gone forth, fathers and guides of the Sangha, and think they should be heeded, only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. As long as the monks do not submit to the power of any arisen craving that leads to renewed existence, only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. As long as the monks are intent on forest dwellings, only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. As long as the monks each keep firmly in mind, if there are any well-behaved fellow monks who have not yet come here, may they come. And may the well-behaved fellow monks who are already here dwell at ease. Only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. As long as the monks remain steadfast in these seven principles of non-decline, and as long as these seven conditions endure among the monks, only growth is to be expected for them, not decline. Luang Po was deeply influenced by the discourse on non-decline. Its principles may be recognized as underlying much of the training system that he developed. The first point prompted the emphasis on group practice that distinguished Wat Ba Pong from most other forest monasteries. 
group meetings, group work periods and group meditation sessions lay at the heart of the daily schedule at Wat Bapong. Monks were regularly reminded of the importance of punctual attendance at group activities, all of which were announced by the ringing of the monastery bell. The rigorous daily schedule was designed to ensure a continuity and consistency of effort on the part of the Sangha members. It opposed laziness and complacency. It supported those who lacked the maturity to develop their meditation practice alone in their kuti. It also provided a means of filtering those with genuine commitment from those without it. Nobody hoping to enter the Sangha and enjoy a life of leisure would choose to live at Wat Bapong. Early Rising The day began at 3am with the sound of the monastery bell. Luang Po instructed the monks to get up the moment they heard the bell, to perform their morning ablutions, gather their robes and bowl, and get to the Dhamma Hall as quickly as possible. Some of the more diligent monks would get up even earlier and already be in the hall, sitting in meditation, when the bell began to ring. Communicating the daily schedule was not the bell's only function. Luang Po also saw it as a teaching tool. Monks were taught that by getting up the moment they became conscious of the sound of the bell, without second thoughts, they were developing a firm and resolute habit of mind. Monks who overslept and came late to the Dhamma Hall, having endured a few emphatic words of admonishment, disgraceful, unacceptable, would be told to consider it a warning sign. If the bell and the social pressure of group sessions were insufficient to motivate the monk to practice, then how would he sustain his sitting and walking meditation when alone in his kuti? Come night, Lung Po growled to one monk, and all you want to do is sleep. One monk remembered, if there was anybody already meditating when you arrived at the Dhamma Hall, then you had to be careful not to let your flip-flops make a thwacking sound as you approached. If you had hard objects in your shoulder bag, like a mug, a spoon or a fruit knife, then you had to keep them wrapped in a face cloth so they wouldn't knock together as you walked in. You had to enter the hall so softly and silently that people meditating there wouldn't be aware of it. While most of the more senior monks were dedicated enough to get up at 3am every day and meditate alone in their kutis through to dawn, few of the younger members of the community, particularly the teenage novices, could sustain such a practice for very long. For them, the support of the group was vital. Initially, some of the newer members of the community attended the early morning sessions more through a mixture of pride and fear than by devotion to the training. But as time went on, giving in to the schedule usually forged good habits that gradually became second nature. Luang Po encouraged the senior monks, who might have preferred to spend the time in solitude, to attend early morning sessions as a gesture of support for the younger ones, to be a good example, and to maintain the harmony of the Sangha. Morning Session The morning meditation was followed at 4am by a period of chanting. 
It began with a detailed recitation of the virtues of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and was supplemented by a selection of daily reflections and longer chants that would be varied throughout the week. Regular chants included an analysis of the physical body in terms of 32 constituent parts, a reflection on old age, sickness, death and the law of gamma, a recollection of the correct way to make use of the requisites, a reflection on loving-kindness, and a dedication of merit. In the early 1970s, Luang Po authorised the adoption of the Pali Thai chanting manual, newly produced by one of his great contemporaries, Ajahn Buddhadasa. This manual contained excellent translations of the Pali texts, which alternated with the original in a concise and rhythmic manner, each line of Pali being followed by its corresponding line of Thai. Equally impressive were translations of key passages from some of the most important discourses in the Pali canon, including those explaining the Eightfold Path and Dependent Origination. Another chanting text dealt with the reflection on the four requisites. Wisely reflecting, I use the robe, only to ward off cold, to ward off heat, to ward off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, burning and creeping things, only for the sake of modesty. Manjama Nikaya, Sutta Number 2 Chanting acted as a ritual expression of the unity of the community by requiring that monks learn how to listen to each other and blend their voices together. Its value as a meditation lay in the fact that mindfulness of the sounds and meaning of the chanting provided a path into wholesome states of mind more accessible to the younger and more restless members of the Sangha than sitting meditation, particularly so early in the morning. It also provided the means to overcome the sloth and torpor that was always the enemy of monks who tried to cut sleep down to the minimum. Chanting was also considered to be auspicious in itself. Since the time of the Buddha, the sound of his teachings, chanted with devotion, was believed to give joy to celestial beings, devas, and to generate a potent spiritual energy. Physically, however, Chanting could be an uncomfortable experience. The morning and evening devotional chants require that the monk sits on his haunches with his weight distributed between knees and toes. For one unused to this posture, after a few minutes, the pressure on the toes becomes excruciating and heat builds up throughout the body. Although chanting books were available, Luang Po urged his disciples to memorize as many of the chants as they could. By doing so, they were able to build up an inner repertory of the root teachings and reflections, both in Pali and their own tongue. It was not unusual for a line from one of the chants to suddenly appear in a monk's mind at an exactly appropriate moment during the day, allowing a release of some attachment or a surge of well-being. There were many chants to learn. Apart from those that featured in the morning and evening services, monks and novices were expected to memorize the Paritta verses chanted for blessing and protection on auspicious occasions and the Madhika verses chanting at funerals.
With the conclusion of morning chanting, the monks practice sitting meditation for the last few minutes until the end of the session at 5 a.m. After paying homage to the triple gem, the monks would file out to the dining hall directly behind the Dhamma Hall, where they would sweep and wipe down the floors and benches with damp cloths, set up their places for the meal, and get ready for alms round. The younger monks and novices would help the older monks by preparing their robes and then, squatting down at their feet as they put them on, join the tags at their bottom corners. Alms Round the daily alms round is one of the ascetic practices encouraged by the Buddha that was compulsory for all healthy monks at Wat Bapong. A monk who missed alms round through oversleeping or laziness was expected to forego his daily meal. The importance that Luang Po gave to alms round was seen by all in his own devotion to the practice. In later years, despite the deterioration of his health and his reliance on a walking stick, he refused to completely abandon it. While the monks were making their way to the local villages, he would walk slowly to the Mechi section at the western end of the monastery and receive alms from the nuns. There were seven alms round routes, one for each of the seven surrounding villages. The walk to and from the villages was on average about five kilometers. Two of the villages, however, required a walk of some eight kilometers. Monks on the longer routes would leave as soon as the sky changed color, usually shortly after 5 a.m. The rest left a while later. Thus, the time when monks entered the village, later in the winter, but usually around 6 a.m., was more or less uniform. Most of the monks would have returned to the monastery by 7 a.m., some monks preferred a long walk in the morning, others a shorter one, and they were free to choose the routes that suited them best. The monks could walk to and from the village at their own pace, but would form into a single file, the order of which was determined by seniority, before beginning the arms round itself. A monk unable to join the arms round for any reason was expected to let others know in advance. It was important that monks arrived at the village more or less together. A group of monks, having to stand at the edge of a village for a long time waiting for stragglers to arrive, before forming the arms round line, was considered unsightly. The monks always followed the same route through the village. As they entered it, the regular donors would be standing outside their houses, bamboo containers of sticky rice in hand. The women would have been up since first light, cooking rice on their charcoal stove, and they would have been enjoying a few minutes' chat with their neighbours, waiting for the monks to arrive. Often, the women would bring one or more of their children or grandchildren out with them, in order to teach them how to offer food and pay respects to the Sangha. In some households, it was the man of the house who put the food in the monks' bowls, and in others, it was one of the children. The Vinaya forbids monks from begging for food from lay people. Monks on alms round walk silently and in single file, stopping only to allow those wishing to offer food to do so. A strong ritual element to the alms round is present throughout. Generally, 
no greeting or conversation is involved. The monks avoid eye contact with the donors and do not say thank you. It is understood that they are providing an opportunity for the donors to make merit by practicing generosity. In the villages surrounding Wat Bapong, the majority of villagers squatting down out of respect would simply drop a small lump of sticky rice into each monk's bowl. Some people might offer bananas, rice sweets or dried fish as well, but only the wealthiest families could afford to do so on a regular basis. A gift of a few lumps of sticky rice was something even the poorest family could afford. It made the arms round an occasion when every household in the village could tangibly contribute to the well-being of the Sangha and feel a sense of participation in the life of their religion. Arms Round also played a central role in fostering a warm relationship between the local villagers and the monastery. Although they seldom spoke to each other, a sense of familiarity and warmth between monks and lay people would develop over a period of months and even years. That Arms Round is not solely concerned with the gathering of arms is indicated by the old Thai monastic idiom referring to it, Brot Sat or saving sentient beings. Seeing the monk's restrained and dignified demeanor first thing in the morning is intended to uplift the minds of the donors and remind them of the moral and spiritual values they revere. This idea that monk's demeanor on arms round could be inspiring to lay people and even lead them to a new or increased faith in the Dhamma goes back to the time of the Buddha. The story of the meeting between Venerable Asaji, one of the first group of great fully enlightened monks, and Sariputta, the ascetic who would go on to become one of the Buddha's chief disciples, was one of Longpo's favorites. It doesn't take a lot to proclaim the Dhamma. Some of the Buddha's disciples, like Venerable Asaji, hardly spoke. They went on arms round in a calm and peaceful manner walking neither quickly nor slowly, dressed in sober-coloured robes. Whether walking, moving, going forwards or back, they were measured and composed. One morning, while Venerable Sariputta was still the disciple of a Brahmin teacher called Sanjaya, he caught sight of Venerable Asaji and was inspired by his demeanour. He approached him and requested some teaching. He asked, who Venerable Asaji's teacher was, and received the answer, the Reverend Gotama. What does he teach that enables you to practice like this? Not so much. He simply says that all Dhammas arise from causes. If they are to cease, their causes must cease first. Just that much. That was enough. He understood that was all it took for Venerable Sariputta to realize the Dhamma. Monks, of course, did not always live up to these ideals. Appropriate behavior on arms round was a recurrent theme in Luangpo's Dhamma talks. On one occasion, he upbraided a group of heedless young monks and novices for walking out of the monastery like a bunch of boisterous fishermen going out to catch fish. 
he would point out the value of alms round to all involved, monks and lay people, and he advised monks disturbed by this kind of misbehavior. Don't talk with the garrulous ones. Talk with your own heart a lot. Meditate a lot. The kind of people who enjoy talking all day are like chattering birds. Don't have anything to do with them. Put your robes on neatly and then set off. As soon as you get into your stride, you can start memorizing the Patimoka. It makes your mind orderly and bright. It's a sort of handbook. The idea is not that you should get obsessed with it, simply that once you've memorized it, the Patimoka will illuminate your mind. As you walk, you focus on it, and before long you've got it, and it arises automatically. Train yourself like that. Arms round performs another important function for the Sangha. It constitutes the monk's most tangible practice of right livelihood, the fifth of the factors of the Eightfold Path. By going on arms round, monks procure the requisites they need to maintain their health and strength in a way appropriate to summoners, not making demands from lay people or seeking to coerce them in any way. In the Sangyutta Nikaya, Chapter 16, Sutta 1, the Buddha instructed his disciples, We will not exhibit any impropriety or do anything inappropriate for the sake of alms food. Not gaining alms food, we will not be agitated. Gaining alms food, we will consume it without being enslaved by it, without being infatuated with it, without committing any offense, seeing the dangers and discerning the escape. Thus, monks, should you train yourselves. There are also additional benefits. Firstly, Armsran provides good physical exercise, a walk of between 2 and 10 kilometers in sometimes trying conditions. In the hot season, a monk with a completely empty stomach returning to his monastery as the sun rises in the sky carrying a large metal bowl full with some four or five kilos of sticky rice, will have had a vigorous workout. Arms round gives many opportunities for the cultivation of patience and endurance. Some routes entail walking barefoot along rough gravel roads that demand considerable fortitude. Arms round is not cancelled due to bad weather, and in a rainstorm, the umbrellas the monks carry only save them from a soaking in the absence of wind. Emerging from the forest and entering a village provides many challenges to a monk's self-possession. He may feel his eyes and ears being pulled one way and another as he walks along. For this reason, arms round provides him with a daily test of the strength of his powers of sense restraint. For advanced meditators, it may also provide potent triggers for insight. Occasionally, monks at Wat Bapong, who had meditated on the nature of the physical body to a profound level, would experience spontaneous visions of almsgivers as moving skeletons, leading to a further deepening of their meditation. Others gained a new understanding of Dhamma from such experiences as the sight of old and sick people the sounds of a young couple arguing violently, or the screams of a pig about to be slaughtered.
at the very least, Alms Round provides the monk with a daily reminder that he is dependent on others for his living. It helps to prevent him from taking his daily meal for granted. He knows that every grain of rice he eats has been produced through the blood, sweat and tears of others. Monks, fresh from spending the early hours of the day in meditation, can be so sensitive to the kindness of the donors that profound feelings of love and compassion arise in their mind. It reminds them that throughout their moral and spiritual struggles there are people who wish them well, who see the value of what they are doing and want to support their work. Lung Po would say to the monks, there's so much Dhamma to be learnt on alms round. Mealtime Monks at Wat Pong would take their one daily meal in the monastery dining hall, situated immediately behind the Dhamma Hall and oriented along the same east-west axis. It was a severe-looking structure, a long, thin, concrete box roofed with galvanised iron. Stretching along the inside of both long walls and below a line of small, barred, glassless windows were platforms some 70 centimetres high and a metre and a half wide, comprised of sturdy wooden benches pushed together into a continuous line. Along these, the monks sat according to seniority, facing outward across the aisle. Lung Po himself sat on a detached platform at the narrow top end of the hall, his gaze encompassing both rows of monks stretched out in front of him. Nobody in the hall could forget, even for a minute, that they were in Lung Po's direct line of vision. The monks sat on their brown cotton sitting cloths, with their bowls, stripped of their crocheted woolen covers, resting on their squat bamboo stands at one side of them. The covers, neatly folded in the prescribed way, were placed behind them. Each monk would have his shoulder bag, also folded in the prescribed way, set back near the wall. In front of it, arranged in a neat line, stood the monk's aluminium water kettle, metal mug and spittoon. Water tanks collected rainwater from filtered pipes connected to the guttering of the dining hall. These tanks provided the monastery supply of drinking water and each monk had his own water kettle. Lung Po taught that the food received on alms round should be considered as a gift to the Sangha as a whole. The monks who received it were merely acting as the Sangha's individual representatives. On their return to the monastery, the monks would first wash their feet outside the dining hall and fold their outer robes or air them in the sun. Then, they would tip the food in their bowls into big enamel receptacles that were carried around by the postulants. The monks were allowed to keep as much sticky rice as they needed. This they moulded into a ball and placed in the bottom of the bowl. The rest of the food was taken to the kitchen for sorting and preparation by the Merchis and the local villagers who had come to participate in the meal offering. Once prepared, the food would be wheeled over from the Watbapong kitchen in a handcart and the pots placed on the floor in front of Lung Po in two sets, one for each side of the hall. Then, all but the most senior monks would get up from their seats and formally receive the food from a postulant or layman. 
After Luang Po had been offered his choice of food, they then proceeded to distribute it into each monk's bowl. Efficiency and impartiality were the goals of the distribution. Monks had no control over the volume or kind of food that went into their bowl, except for the dishes they distributed themselves. Unsurprisingly, certain monks could sometimes be seen trying to commandeer dishes which they particularly enjoyed or for which they harbored a particular aversion. Others made firm determinations to resist the temptation. Returning to their seats after the food had been distributed, some monks might be observed glancing into their bowls and suppressing a sigh at the sight before them. All the different dishes thrown together inside, perhaps something sweet, floating in an oily, spicy curry, and other items completely submerged. They would put the lids back on their bowls and sit quietly until Luang Po led them in a short chant of appreciation and blessing for the donors. Following this, they would remove the lids from their bowls and contemplate the food. They were taught to remind themselves that they ate merely as a means of keeping their body healthy and fit for the work of Dhamma practice. They were to avoid gluttony and to refrain from indulging in the pleasant feelings that naturally arose while eating. After a short time, Luang Po would then take his first mouthful. As soon as he did so, the two monks at the head of each row followed suit. Then the next two monks started to eat, and so on, all the way down to the end of the long line. In the dining hall, the monks focused their attention on being as silent as possible. Big pots, small pots, kettles, spittoons, everything had to be handled with delicacy and care. While eating, monks had to be careful not to make chomping or slurping sounds, or chapu-chapu and suru-suru, as the Pali has it. A monk who allowed his metal spoon, the only eating implement allowed, to scrape against his bowl would earn an admonitory grunt from Lung Po. The method of distribution of the food was fast, practical, and a powerful tool for overcoming attachment to its flavor, but it did lead to waste. These days, Monks usually serve themselves from offered dishes of food arranged on a long table. The effort to reduce waste has taken precedent over the ascetic practice. In later years, particularly, there was usually far too much in the bowl to eat, increasing the challenge to know when to stop. Overeating could cast a dull, heavy shadow over the whole day, as one monk remembered from his own early struggles. He taught us to eat moderately. He taught us to estimate when we were three mouthfuls short of being full, and then to stop and drink water until we felt full. He said, if you eat too much, after the meal you'll be dull and sleepy and disinterested in meditation. He was right. If you eat too much, you feel bloated, and you don't feel like practicing walking meditation. You're still on your way back to your kuti, and already thoughts of a nap are coming into your mind. When all the monks had finished their meal, Luang Po would ring the small bell beside him. The entire community would bow three times together and then exit the dining hall, carrying their bowls and stands, 
with spittoons in the lids in the specified way, being careful to avoid any clanking of hard surfaces. Outside, on the long porch area, they would take off their robes, fold them mindfully, and take their bowls to the bowl-washing area at the edge of the forest, where there were water jars and a deep rubbish pit. The bowls were laid on bound grass circles and washed with leaves, as stated earlier. In later years, detergent came to be used. After the bowls had been washed, dried, aired in the sun for a few minutes and covers put on, the monks would don their robes once more and return to their seats in the dining hall, where Luang Po would still be sitting. Often, lay people who had come to offer food would be taking this opportunity to speak with him. Some days, he might give a discourse, on others, make announcements. But more often than not, he would ring a small bell once more, and the monks would bow three times to the Buddha image, three times to Luang Po, and then return to their kutis. There they would clean their teeth, sweep the area around their kuti, put their robes up to air on a line, and start to practice walking meditation. Afternoon Schedule Monks were free to structure the middle hours of the day as they saw fit. Apart from being time to deepen their meditation practice, it was also used for seeing to various personal chores. Most monks would take a short nap around midday. At 3pm, the monastery bell would be rung and all the monks and novices would leave their kutis with their brooms and make their way to the central area in order to sweep the fallen leaves. This was also the time to sweep and wipe down the floors in the Dhamma Hall, Dining Hall and Uposita Hall. Sometimes Luang Po would lead the monks in a longer work project, such as building or repairing kutis, but the daily tasks consisted of hauling water and sweeping leaves. Ajahn Jan recollected the benefits of the routine. At three o'clock, the bell would be rung and we'd come together to do the daily chores. Some monks would sweep and wipe down the Dhamma Hall and Dining Hall. Others would draw water up from the well for drinking and general use. A group of monks would carry the water in old oil drums to the toilets and to Lungpo's Kuti, to the bowl-washing area and to the lay people's toilet block. We'd also clean the toilet blocks. Lungpo said, that cleaning toilets was fitting work for monks, work hard to find. Why should we be averse to it? Lay visitors don't clean the toilets. It's the responsibility of the resident monks. More than that, Lung Po would say, it's good practice. Doing something we don't want to do, wearing away the defilements. As always, the emphasis was on harmony and the cultivation of good friendship. Working together was as much a means of nurturing the sense of community as group meditation and chanting. One day, Luang Po instructed the Sangha, When you're working or doing the daily chores, don't be deceitful or devious. Don't think it's a good thing if you can get away with doing less than your share. That's defilement. Know your mind. Keep abreast of its movements. 
and then your actions will have no unpleasant consequences, and your life will be of benefit to the religion. Look inwardly at your mind, and outwardly at your actions, so that you can protect them both. Monks were cautioned not to let their personal affairs take precedence over group activities. When the bell was rung, everyone was expected to immediately put down whatever they were doing and make their way to the central area. It was through this punctuality and steady commitment to group chores that the harmony of the Sangha was grounded. Be alert to what needs to be done. Be observant. These were constant exhortations. The senior monks had an important role to play. If the senior monks let things go, then so will everyone else. How can the younger ones be expected to know what to do? Who will they take as their example? If something needs to be seen to and is neglected, then lazy habits grow and grow. Occasionally, after the daily work period, at around five in the evening, a novice might bring out a big aluminium kettle filled with a hot sweet drink made from the cooking and straining of allowables such as bale fruit, tamarind or ginger. In later, more prosperous days, cocoa or coffee became popular. Once a week or so, there might be samore or Indian gooseberry, bitter laxative fruits, sanctioned by the vinya for consumption in the evening, which were eaten with salt and chilies. Not at first glance an obvious object of desire, these were considered a treat and many monks would consume them avidly. Every once in a while, teenage novices and young monks would go on a myrobaland binge, resulting in a night of purging diarrhoea, which the afflicted accepted with considerable stoicism. The behaviour of the teenage novices became more of an issue for the Sangha during the 1970s when Lung Po gave the opportunity for significantly more of them to ordain. Life in the monastery was not easy to adapt to, and the occasional excessive reactions to all the restrictions on their behaviour were unsurprising. Mostly these incidents involved food and drink. After the evening kettles of sweet drink had been passed around twice, most of the monks would head off to the well for their evening bath. The drink remaining in the kettles, and about to be tipped away, could be a strong temptation for those remaining. Every now and then someone would decide that it would be a shame to see it all go to waste. One such occasion earned a sharp rebuke from Luang Po. Think about that time, when we were building the oppositor hall and some coffee was brought over. Afterwards, I heard some people complaining, Oh, enough, enough, I've had so much, I feel sick. That's a truly disgusting thing for a monastic to say. Drinking so much, you feel like vomiting. Seven or eight cups each. What were you thinking of? It's taking things too far. Do you think that you became monastics in order to eat and drink? If it was some kind of competition, it was a crazy one. After you'd finished, the cups were left out in a long line, and so were the kettles. Nobody did any washing up. Only dogs don't clean up after they've eaten. Luang Po was insistent that the consumption of any drinks and medicinal fruits in the monastery be restricted to an agreed time and place and open to all. 
a monk who received some individual gift from his family, would be encouraged to relinquish it to the kitchen. Private parties in monks' kutis were absolutely forbidden. Luang Po saw small private gatherings as leading to cliques within the monastery and to heedless behavior. You get together, eating Indian gooseberries, or lumps of palm sugar, or whatever, and you get chatting, and before long you're off, right around the world. You start talking about worldly subjects, and before long you're on to disrobing, and what you'll do after you've left the monastery. You're noisy and boisterous, and in all your high spirits, you forget your responsibilities as monks. Evening Chanting The monks would bathe every day at one of the designated open bathing areas distributed through the forest. Each monk would take his own bar of soap and sluice his body with well water scooped with a plastic dipper from one of the large earthenware jars. After bathing, the monks would practice walking meditation until the bell rang for the evening session. In the early days of Wat Bapong, sessions would include a talk from Luang Po almost every night. But in later years, as his health declined, Luang Po's addresses to the Sangha were less frequent. Ajahn Sukchai said, Luang Po emphasized the chants because he wanted us to take them away and meditate on them. He always seemed so enthusiastic about teaching us. He really wanted us to benefit from the practice. It was like we were metal he was hammering out flat on the anvil or like wood he was hewing down to the right size for sawing. He put so much into teaching us. Whoever couldn't take it, left. He wouldn't coddle anyone. He wanted us to be well trained. During the day, he told us not to read books, but to memorize chants, and then to meditate, sitting and walking. He didn't want us to socialize, to sit around chatting in a noisy, boisterous way. The evening session would end at nine or ten o'clock, sometimes eleven, and everybody would go back to their kutis and carry on with their practice. Luang Paul said we shouldn't sleep before eleven o'clock. On observance day, everybody would determine not to lie down for the whole night. We would meditate together at the Dhamma Hall with the lay people until three in the morning and then start the morning chanting. No exceptions. Despite being a gifted orator and giving far more formal instruction to his disciples than was common in the forest tradition, Luang Po gave first priority to leading by example. He was careful about setting precedents. It was clear that he sought to provide a model for all his disciples to bear in mind when they became leaders in their own right. Ajahn Chan recalled that at one point the monastic community became worried about Luang Po's health. In addition to leading the Sangha in every group activity, he also attended to many extra duties as the abbot and had little time to rest. But when the Sangha formally invited Luang Po to take a break from group activities whenever he wished, he refused. He said that he would participate for as long as he was able. He wanted no special privileges. He needed none. The unspoken words that everyone heard were, 
if I can attend all the sessions with all my responsibilities, then all of you certainly can. When Ajahn Sumedho, his first Western disciple, arrived, Lung Po made it clear that he would not be given any special treatment. I had never seen a Westerner before. I didn't know him. I'd just heard that his country was a wonderful place. But I hadn't seen it. I just imagined what it must be like. When he asked to live here, I started to feel a little uneasy. I was worried, you see why? Because he had been used to a comfortable and convenient life. How was he going to endure the difficulties of living in the forest like this? But he said he could do it. And so I made a condition. I said he could stay, but I wasn't going to give him any special treatment. At home, he used to eat bread and milk and cheese to his heart's content, but I wasn't going to provide those things for him. Needless to say, Ajahn Sumedho arrived at Wat Pong without the slightest expectation that the monastery would provide him a daily ration of cheese sandwiches and a glass of milk. But he did accept Lung Po's point that he must conform to the way things were done and not expect any special privileges. The practice was one of going against the grain of old habits and desires and of learning how to adapt wisely to situations. The Vinaya, and the observances in particular, allowed people of different personalities and from different backgrounds to live together with remarkably little friction between them. Practice of the observances gave new members of the Sangha a sense of ease in monastic life. While their meditation practice might still be in its infancy, the diligent practice of the observances gave them a wholesome pride in their monkhood. Luang Por explained how keeping the observances was empowering. Once, a long time ago, I was up north of here, staying with some elderly monks. They were Lungtas, they'd only been ordained for a couple of years, and by then, I'd already been a monk for ten years. While I was there, I put forth a lot of effort into practicing the observances. I helped those old monks with their robes and bowls, with emptying spittoons, all kinds of things. I didn't think I was doing anybody any favors. I considered that I was practicing my observances. I thought that even if nobody else practices these observances, I will. The profit is mine. It made me feel a good, wholesome pride. On the opposite day, I'd sweep the opposite hall and put out water. The other monks didn't know the observances and so weren't bothered about them, and I didn't say anything. I felt that wholesome pride when I performed the duties, and when I practiced sitting or walking meditation, I felt good. Meditation went well. I felt energetic because keeping the observances is energizing. Outwardly composed, inwardly bright and wakeful, this was the ideal that the monks in training at Wat Bapong were to work towards. By orienting monks' minds in the very precise ways towards the immediate physical and social environment, the observances helped to reduce the dangers of serious meditators falling prey to self-absorption. Lung Po did not want a training that produced an elevated, 
otherworldly narcissism. Taking on responsibilities and making sacrifices for the common good had to balance the periods of formal meditation practice. Wherever in the monastery something needs doing, if you know how to do it, then see to it. If you find something dirty and untidy, then sort it out straight away, not for anyone else's sake or to make a good name for yourself, but for the sake of your practice. When you have that motivation, cleaning things is like sweeping dirt out of your mind. Whenever there's some heavy work to be done, then everyone should lend a hand. Nothing takes very long if the whole Sangha helps out. Lung Po was especially critical of monks who shirked their share of community work and took advantage of the hard work of others. At one time, I was living with a large group of monks. On robe washing day, I'd go out to chop the jackfruit chips and prepare the water. As soon as the water was boiling, a few of the monks and novices would arrive, do their washing and dyeing, and then disappear. They'd leave their robes out on the line and go back to their kuti for a nap, without ever helping to put things away or wash things out. They thought they were on to a good thing, but in fact, what they were doing was the crassest stupidity. Think about it. Your friend does the work and you reap the fruits without doing anything to help him. Absolutely nothing good will come of that kind of behavior. If monks neglect their duties and think that the less work they can get away with doing the better, then they will not be able to live in the community. It's like two oxen pulling a cart. The cunning one gets harnessed right in front of the yoke and leaves the other one to struggle up front. The ox near the yoke can go all day without getting tired. It can keep going or it can rest. It can do whatever it likes because it's not taking any weight and not expending any energy. With only one ox pulling it, the cart moves slowly. Bowing Expressing devotion to non-material realities, such as wisdom and compassion, by bowing to material forms expressive of them, Buddha images in particular, is an ancient Buddhist practice. The nature of the bow varies somewhat throughout the Buddhist world. In Wat Bapong, a precise version of the Thai style of bowing was taught. It begins with the adoption of the kneeling posture. Hands are brought prayer-like to the chest, briefly raised to the forehead, and then placed flat on the floor, about 20 centimeters apart, palms downwards. The forehead is lowered to touch the floor between the hands, eyebrows in line with the tips of the thumbs, elbows close to the knees, forearms flush with the floor. After a slight pause, there is a return to the initial kneeling position and the movement is repeated twice more. Three bows, one for each of the three refuges. Bowing can be a very satisfying practice, and yet, at the same time, it can easily be treated as a perfunctory ritual. For dedicated practitioners, the sensation of the forehead pressing against the floor may have such a profound emotional effect that they feel tears of joy. Bowing became one of the defining features of the training at Wat Ba Pong. 
Lung Po and his disciples bowed a great deal, far more than was usual in Thai monasteries. Monks in the city sometimes referred to Wat Ba Pong as that monastery where they bow all the time. For Luang Po, bowing was both a short ritual reminder of the guiding ideals of Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and a practical tool for grounding awareness in the present moment. In most monasteries, monastics bow to the Buddha on formal occasions, such as during the morning and evening services, or on paying respects to a senior monk. Lung Po taught, in addition, that his disciples should bow every time they entered or left a building and every time they approached or took leave of a senior monk. Monks at Wat Ba Pong could expect to bow over a hundred times a day. Bowing as a means to regularly re-establish mindfulness was a practice Luang Po had learnt as a young monk from Lung Pu Kinneri and one on which he laid great store. Bowing is very important. Although it's only a physical gesture, it's part of the practice. You should bow in the correct way, and when you're in a group, bow at the same time as everyone else. Don't arch your body, don't hurry too much. With body straight, slowly incline the head downwards until your forehead touches the floor. Place your elbows about three inches from the knees. Bow slowly, mindful of the body. Bowing helps to cure conceit. You should bow often. As you prostrate three times, keep in mind the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. Don't make the mistake of watching how others bow. If young novices are sloppy or the aged monks appear unmindful, that is not for you to judge. People can be difficult to train. Some learn fast, but others learn slowly. Judging others will only increase your pride. Watch yourself instead. Bow often. Get rid of your pride. When you hear the monastery bell, bow before you leave your kuti. On the first bow, sincerely recollect the virtues of the Buddha. On the second bow, sincerely recollect the virtues of the Dhamma. And on the third bow, sincerely recollect the virtues of the Sangha. Then, Slowly walk out of your kuti. If, when you arrive at the central area to help with the sweeping or some other group activity, you realize that you forgot to bow, then go back to your kuti and bow. Train yourself until bowing becomes second nature to you. When the work is over and you go back to your kuti, then bow again. Bow before you start to meditate. Bow before you leave your kuti. Don't let this practice slip. Continually maintain it. If you go to urinate or defecate or to have a bath, then on your return, bow. Develop this practice until you remember it wherever you are. As soon as you sit down, you bow. With a mind of faith, bowing down while recollecting the virtues of the triple gem can cause the hairs to stand up on the back of your neck and for you to feel thrilled by rapture. Respect for Elders In the discourse on non-decline quoted earlier, the fifth of the factors predictive of the non-decline of the Sangha is listed as respect for elders. Luang Po, always with an eye on the long-term welfare of his monastery, 
made this a key feature of Wat Pa Pong culture, and he considered it a vital element in sustaining the kind of social harmony appropriate to a community of summoners. Over the course of time, friendships and occasional enmities rose and fell away within the community in the natural way. But by insisting that monks always relate to each other strictly within the boundaries provided by monastic etiquette, Lung Po did much to prevent significant cliques and divisions from developing in the monastery. Bowing played a central role. The requirement that on formal occasions monks bow to all other monks senior to them gave Sangha members a constant reminder of the principle that considerations of seniority always took precedence over personal likes and dislikes. In addition to this, whenever a monk entered into a formal conversation with another monk more senior than he, he was taught to keep his hands together in the prayer-like Anjali for the duration of the conversation. Such a practice was a great help in ensuring that any words spoken were mindful, polite, and appropriate. The Thai language itself supports such right speech. In conversation, word choice is often determined by the relationship between the speakers. The specific words and phrases denoting respect to elders were always used in speech between monastics. Honorifics were never omitted. An objection is sometimes made that these social conventions muddy the waters between internal feelings of respect and external expressions of it. But does not a fixed respectful attitude, irrespective of true feelings, encourage hypocrisy? It was not seen in that way. The principle that Luang Po constantly drew upon in his training at Wat Ba Pong was that wholesome actions performed again and again as observances, promoted correspondingly wholesome mental states. Thus, by acting in a respectful manner again and again, wholesome thoughts and perceptions were promoted and prioritized, while the unwholesome ones were marginalized. In fact, many of the protocols guiding the relationships between junior and senior members of the community would already have been familiar to monks when they entered the Sangha at Wat Ba Pong. Over the course of hundreds of years, certain features of monastic etiquette have been adopted by Thai society as the gold standard for good manners. This is particularly true with regard to the showing of respect to elders. Mindfulness of physical space and relative position is an immediately obvious expression of these protocols. In Wat Ba Pong, a junior must never stand above a senior who is sitting down, nor walk close by him without acknowledgement. If the senior sitting down is his teacher, the student needing to pass squats down and continues by on his knees, head inclined. If the monk sitting down is senior to him, but not his teacher, he inclines his head as he walks by, making himself smaller. A junior monk never touches one senior to him on the head, he never reaches above the senior's head without first asking permission. He always sits on a lower seat. In any formal setting, he never speaks without first asking for permission. If the senior is his teacher, or is a revered Sangha elder, he bows three times every time he enters and leaves his presence. To a young man joining the Sangha at Wat Ba Pong, most of these conventions would have appeared to be refined versions of behaviours that were already second nature to him.
nothing so bad. In the Majjhima Nikaya, Sutta 122, the Buddha said to his loyal attendant, Indeed, Ananda, it is not possible that a monk who delights in company will ever obtain at will, without trouble or difficulty, the bliss of renunciation, the bliss of seclusion, the bliss of peace, the bliss of enlightenment. One succinct teaching that Lung Po's disciples had drummed into them from the beginning of their monastic life and came to sum up the values of Wat Ba Pong was eat little, sleep little, talk little, practice a lot. The dangers of gossip and frivolous speech crop up either directly or indirectly in a number of the Sangha regulations. Lung Po maintained that practice would only really develop when monks were ready to face up to suffering and learn from it. Idle conversation was a prime means by which monks sought to suppress or distract themselves from suffering. That was not its only drawback. The topics of idle conversations stirred up the defilements of all involved. Socializing for frivolous purposes often led to dissension and it undermined the harmony of the Sangha. Of all the detrimental activities that I've seen since I've been living in the forest, none is worse than monks gathering together for frivolous conversation. This has the most harmful results. But it's also the thing that monks and novices find hardest to abstain from. It's right here that things go wrong. I don't see it as having any benefit. It damages your practice, your work. It's unfitting, and after it's over, it gives rise to remorse. There's nothing good about it. This is where things have gone wrong in the past, right here. When you get together like this, then your speech becomes exaggerated. You start talking nonsense, laughing and teasing each other. All kinds of foolishness appear. In a group, you start joking and playing around. Then your mind becomes agitated. You don't realize how loud your voice is because you have no self-awareness. You're lost in the pleasure of it all. It's right there that you need to be mindful. Not just when you're by yourself. When you're alone, you don't need so much mindfulness. But in a group, you need a lot. With groups of monks, groups of novices, groups of lay people, that's where you need to be mindful. Not getting carried away by your mood. Keep returning to your meditation object at regular intervals. In company, your practice needs to be on a very high level. On another occasion, Lung Po spoke of the state of mind of the practitioner and how it is reflected in his outer demeanor. If, through this training, your mind has become lucid and calm, you will become more aloof from your friends. You won't want to socialize. If people come round to see you, you'll find it an annoyance. The Buddha said that a group of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of enlightened beings can dwell together without making any noise. A hundred or two hundred real practitioners living together and there's no sound of frivolous conversation. Censorship a number of observances and monastic regulations supplemented the training rules regulating monks' contact with laywomen. 
a junior monk's conversations with laywomen were restricted to family members. Speaking with any woman, including his own mother, a monk would first have to ask permission and to speak in a public place with at least one other male present. Lung Po viewed the sensual cravings of young monks as open wounds that were in the process of slowly healing. Contact with lay people in general, and women in particular, was seen as unnecessarily exposing the wounds to the possibility of infection. Ajahn Jandi remembers, He stressed that having a lot of contact with lay people was a cause of decline. Monks of my generation would be in the monastery two or three years before they had a conversation with lay people. Sometimes my sister came to visit, and we would be too scared of Lung Po to say much to each other. It was even worse if you requested permission to go home to visit your family. Why? he would ask in a very stern voice. He was so intimidating that you didn't ever want to ask again. If you wanted to visit your home, you needed a very good reason. Female visitors to the monastery were to be received in a public area. It was absolutely prohibited for women to visit monks at their kuti. Lung Po explained how these rules protected the reputation of the monk. If you have guests, whether it's your mother or younger sister or whoever, then meet them at the dining hall. If someone comes asking after a particular monk, no matter who it is, invite them to go and wait there. Why aren't you allowed to receive guests at your kuti? Because if a woman comes to visit you, how is anyone to know she's your sister or your mother? How is anyone else to know that it's not your ex-wife or old girlfriend? To a modern eye, Luang Po's attitude may seem overly paternalistic. But paternalism was precisely the point. Monks voluntarily entered into a father-son relationship with the teacher, and by doing so, ceded to him the right to make such judgments concerning their spiritual welfare. Luang Po's deep knowledge of the workings of the mind made him keenly aware of how strong and deceitful the mental defilements can be. It took only a moment of heedlessness for old, unskillful habits as yet untamed to overwhelm a monk's ideals and aspirations and cause lasting damage both to his own welfare and reputation and to that of the monastery. Given what was involved, over-vigilance, like the over-engineering of a load-bearing structure, was the wisest policy. The strictures on contact with lay people extended to correspondence. When you receive a letter, or when you're going to send one, inform Ajahn Chu or Ajahn Liam. What have you written? Read it out to them. When a letter arrives, give it to one of them to read first. What kind of letter is it? What's it about? Is a young woman writing to you? Is it a sensible letter? Are you in touch with the communists? Are you smuggling in secret agents? Observe whether your correspondence leads to growth in the Dhamma or decline. Ceremonies 1. Asking for Forgiveness Luang Po used many of the simple rituals found in the Vinaya texts to promote the values of harmony and good friendship in the Sangha. 
of those that regulated the relationships between teacher and student, senior monk and junior monk, that of asking for forgiveness was the most personal. Before leaving the monastery for an extended period, to go on Tudong, for example, or to take up residence at a branch monastery, a monk, wearing his main robe with right shoulder exposed and outer robe folded neatly over his left shoulder, would approach Lung Po. In his hand, he would be bearing a small tray, neatly arranged upon which were candles, incense, flowers and toothwoods that he had carved himself. After bowing three times, and then sitting on his haunches, hands in Anjali, and intoning the traditional Pali phrases, he would formally request forgiveness for any inappropriate actions of body, speech and mind, intentional or unintentional, public or private, that he might have committed during the period he had spent under Lung Po's guidance. Lung Po would first utter the Pali phrase, offering forgiveness to his disciple, and then, in turn, would ask for forgiveness from him, in case he had inadvertently caused him distress. Then Lung Po would give a blessing, followed by a Dhamma teaching. It was a ceremony that cast an uplifting seal on the preceding period. It gave the student, who might otherwise be too much in awe of Lung Po to request a private interview, an intimate meeting with his master that he would remember wherever he went in the future. If the monk harboured any regrets or fears that he might have committed some bad gamma while living with Lung Po, his mind would be put to rest by the words of forgiveness. This ceremony was not restricted to marking the end of a period of teaching from Lung Po himself. His disciples who entered a formal training relationship with the abbot of a branch monastery were required to follow the same practice. It was considered the correct way for monks to take leave of each other. The ceremony was also performed by the whole Sangha before the beginning of a retreat period, a kind of clearing of the air, the declaration of a new beginning. Lung Po also encouraged monks to use the ceremony as a skillful means to resolve the bad feelings that could occasionally arise between them and to make formal amends for bad behaviour. A monk does not ask forgiveness of a monk more junior to him in this formal manner. It was always the junior monk that asked forgiveness of the senior. If a senior monk feels it necessary to apologise to a junior, he does so informally. In cases where there were hurt feelings on both sides of a dispute and the junior monk did not feel that he had done anything wrong, he would, nevertheless, be the one encouraged to swallow his pride and ask for forgiveness. Assuming the blame in this way, he handed the more senior monk an opportunity to be magnanimous, to accept his own contribution to the problem without losing face. This brief ceremony provided a surprisingly effective template for monks to use in putting grievances behind them. Ajahn Liam, the monk Luang Po hand-picked to be his successor as abbot of Wat Pong, reflected on the understanding of the ceremony of asking for forgiveness that he had learned. The sages consider asking forgiveness as a way of erasing bad things from the mind sometimes through heedlessness or carelessness or through a lack of understanding, we might have unwholesome thoughts towards our teacher. 
when we want them to fade away and disappear from our minds, then we perform this ceremony in order to cut off any kamic consequences. It's of great benefit to Dhamma practitioners because it stops worry and agitation from overwhelming the mind. It brings to an end any suspicion and mistrust. You feel clear and bright. Your mind is at ease whether you continue to live with the teacher or go elsewhere. Asking for forgiveness is a beautiful custom. At times, even enlightened beings ask for forgiveness in order to be a good example to their disciples and to future generations. Ceremonies 2. Asking for Dependence A junior or Navaka monk, one who has been ordained for less than five years, must take dependence on a teacher. He does so by means of a short ceremony during which he makes the request, May the Venerable Sir be my teacher. I will live in dependence on you. When the teacher replies in the affirmative, the student chants, Mai hung paro, a humpy terasa paro. May you be my burden. May I be your burden. Through this ceremony, the monk formally declares himself willing to be trained and to be open to admonishment. Only after the initial five-year training period is over does the monk earn the privilege to live independently of a teacher. The ceremony is repeated by the whole monastic community at the beginning of the annual three-month rains retreat. First, the community formally asks for forgiveness from the teacher for any transgressions they may have committed against him during the preceding months. Then, they renew their request for dependence upon him for the coming retreat. The teacher gives a blessing to his disciples and then an exhortation. On one such occasion, Lung Po taught, You have now requested dependence. It's as if you have nowhere to live or your home isn't big enough and you ask to live in somebody's house and become their dependent. There is advice that you need to take and certain duties that you must perform out of respect for the owner of the house. One of the duties here is that on every occasion that I teach you, you take my words away and reflect upon them and then practice accordingly. My duty is to assist you with all your material needs and to teach you the Dhamma and various observances. So, from this day onwards, our relationship will be that between teacher and disciple. As teacher, I give you Dhamma, reflections, perspectives, knowledge, and so on in a fitting measure. As you have asked me for dependence, I am happy to grant this and have no qualms about it. If we look on each other like father and son, then our relationship will be one of mutual trust. The Buddha taught us that if we go to a monastery and it seems to be a suitable place, then, on the first or second day, whenever there's a convenient occasion, we seek permission from the teacher to stay on for a while longer or ask for dependence from him straight away. Then you can say, if the venerable abbot should see my conduct or manners to be at fault or inappropriate, 
then I invite you to please, out of compassion, admonish me. I will take away what you say and reflect on it accordingly. This is a truly excellent thing to do. If you don't do that, then the teacher doesn't know what he can say to you. He doesn't know whether or not you're willing to be admonished, whether you'd be upset by anything. So, inviting admonishment is important. It signals respect. When a teacher such as myself hears that invitation, he feels reassured. If the disciple does something wrong, then the teacher knows that he can say something. He feels encouraged to give guidance and teaching. There are no qualms or uncertainties in his mind. Asking for dependence creates a closeness between teacher and student. The disciple opens himself up, humbles himself, and a deep, mutual understanding can develop. According to the discipline, a monk with more than five reigns is expected to have gained sufficient knowledge of the Dhamma and discipline to live independently of a teacher if he wishes. He should know what is an offence and what is not, what is a heavy offence and what is a light one, and the way to atone for offences committed. Not all of those who have been monks for five years have, of course, gained this level of maturity. In such cases, Luang Po would have them continue under dependence until he was convinced they did. He also observed that even if it's no longer compulsory, a monk who is restrained and composed, respectful, heedful, may choose to request dependence anyway, like a grown-up son whose own hair has gone grey, but whose deference to his parents never wavers. The Fourteen Duties As the word injunction suggests, the Vinaya texts collected in the Khandakas are concerned not only with acts of wrongdoing, but also with duties and responsibilities that were to be enjoined. One hallmark of the training at Wat Bapong was the importance given to the practice of a set of fourteen of these duties, or Kitjavatta. Luang Po held that they promoted the individual monk's development of mindfulness, circumspection, thoroughness and attention to one's responsibilities, at the same time as nurturing the harmony and integrity of the Sangha. These duties are as follows. 1. The duties of a visiting monk on arrival at a monastery. 2. The duties of resident monks towards visiting monks. 3. The duties of a monk on leaving a monastery. 4. The method of showing appreciation of merit. 5. The duties in the dining hall and when receiving a meal outside the monastery. 6. The duties on alms round. 7. The duties of a forest dweller. 8. The duties towards the dwelling place. 9. The duties in the firehouse. This is a precursor of the modern sauna and used for medicinal purposes in the time of the Buddha. 10. The duties in the toilet. 11. The duties of a disciple to his preceptor. 12. 
the duties of a preceptor to his disciple. 13. The duties of a disciple to his teacher. And 14. The duties of a teacher to his disciple. Duties towards the teacher or preceptor. Of these duties, a detailed explanation of just one pair, the duties of the disciple towards the teacher or preceptor, will give some idea of their sophistication. The duties of the student towards the teacher and the preceptor overlap a great deal. Here, the explanation will solely refer to the teacher-student relationship, as Longpo did not become a preceptor until 1976. You should all take an interest in the various duties, such as those towards the preceptor or teacher. These duties bind us together and create a sense of community and harmony. They enable us to show our respect in a way that's been considered auspicious since the time of the Buddha. The teacher-student relationship laid down in the texts is governed by the idea of mutual responsibility. The teacher performs his responsibility to the student by teaching him and acting as a good example. The student performs his duty to the teacher by dedicating himself to the study and application of all that he has been taught and by performing various services for him. At Wat Bapong, the role of personal attendant was highly coveted, and the attendant was regularly rotated in order to prevent jealousy. Attendance on the teacher is a unique kind of Dhamma practice. Essentially, the monk takes the teacher's daily needs as his object of mindfulness. It is a practice that calls for devotion, patience, endurance, alertness, sensitivity and intelligence. The system by which junior monks take turns to act as the teacher's personal attendant has many beneficial effects, both for the teacher and the student. The student gains an opportunity to see the teacher's way of practice at close quarters, to be inspired by him, to develop a bond with him and to overcome his shyness in asking for personal guidance. At the same time, the teacher gets to see the disciple at close quarters and to observe his general demeanour, his mindfulness, the attitude he brings to his duties and his general character, all of which aid him in teaching his disciple in the most effective way. The extent to which the duties to the teacher are performed is influenced to a certain degree by the age and personality of the teacher. There is less to do for a healthy teacher in his forties than for a frail one in his seventies. Some senior monks insist on receiving the bare minimum amount of service and on looking after their own affairs. Generally speaking, teachers would prefer to perform themselves many of the duties that their attendants perform for them, but they submit to the conventions out of respect for the vinya and for the benefit of the attendant. With certain modifications, the practice taught at Wat Bapong, closely based upon the original prescriptions in the Kandakas, is as follows. Early in the morning, the attendant makes his way to the teacher's kuti and announces his arrival with a polite cough. 
the first duty of the morning is to prepare water for the teacher to wash his face and brush his teeth, and then to offer him a towel to dry his face. Next, the attendant offers the teacher's lower robe to him, as he has been sleeping in his bathing cloth, and then his upper robe. As they walk to the Dhamma hall, the attendant, who carries the teacher's outer robe and shoulder bag, walks ahead. In the Dhamma hall, he takes the sitting cloth from the shoulder bag and spreads it out neatly, and then places the teacher's folded outer robe by its side. At the end of the morning session, the attendant picks up the shoulder bag and sitting cloth and takes them to the dining hall. Next, the attendant prepares the teacher's seat in the dining hall by neatly laying out the water kettle, spittoon, lap cloth, toothwood, and stainless steel spoon, although many forest monks prefer to eat with their right hand. He prepares the alms bowl by detaching it from its bamboo stand and by rinsing it with water. He then takes the teacher's upper and outer robes and lays them out together, ready for the teacher to put on, tags already tied. The attendant carries the teacher's alms bowl to the edge of the village before offering it to him. As soon as the alms round is over, he requests the bowl and carries it back to the monastery ahead of the teacher. On arrival, he removes his own upper and outer robes and empties his and the teacher's alms bowl into a large enamel vessel, which is taken by a postulant to the kitchen. Then, he waits at the footbath outside the Dhamma hall in order to wash and dry the teacher's feet. He helps the teacher out of his robes and if they have become stained with sweat, he puts them on the line to air. As soon as the teacher has finished his meal, the attendant asks permission to wash his hands. The teacher holds his hands over the spittoon, and the attendant pours water over them and dries them with a towel. He then offers him a toothwood. Following this, the attendant cleans up the teacher's seat and takes his bowl and spittoon away to wash after which he takes the teacher's bowl back to his kuti, where he stores it next to his own. If the teacher is receiving guests during the day, the attendant monk sits quietly at his side and offers any assistance that might be needed. If it's very hot, for example, or there are mosquitoes, he may fan the teacher. If he wants to open or close a window, he must ask permission. When the teacher has company, he does not interrupt or speak unless he is spoken to. If women come to see the teacher, he is always present to ensure that the teacher is never alone with a woman. He acts as the teacher's secretary, reminding him of any upcoming appointments. He may arrange a refreshing drink for the teacher if he has been teaching for a long time. He makes sure that the teacher takes any medicines he has been prescribed at the proper time. If he notices that the teacher is tired, then he tries to find a polite way to encourage guests to leave and allow the teacher time to rest. The attendant monk keeps the teacher's kuti clean, seeing that it is swept and wiped down regularly. Every day he sweeps the area around the kuti, the walking meditation path, and the path leading to the kuti. 
He makes sure there is a constant supply of water in the earthenware jar for bathing and in the water kettle for drinking. He regularly puts bedding out in the sun to air. Pillowcases and blankets are regularly washed. He either makes necessary repairs to the kuti himself or informs the sangha of what needs to be done. He keeps the toilet spotless. He makes sure that soap, toothpaste, etc. do not run out. The attendant monk is responsible for washing the teacher's robes. He does not abandon them on the clothesline, but watches over them until they are dry, and then folds them neatly and returns them to the teacher's kuti. The attendant monk prepares a fresh bathing cloth, a towel and soap for the teacher's evening bath, which may either take place at a large earthenware jar in the open or in a bathroom. If the weather is cold or the teacher is ill, the attendant may arrange for some hot water to be prepared. Elderly monks sometimes sit on a chair while bathing. Others stand, tipping water over themselves with a dipper from a jar. The attendant monk helps to soap the teacher's feet, legs and back. He does not touch the teacher's head. He asks permission before his first touch of the teacher's body. Some teachers do not like to be helped with their bath, in which case the attendant stands to one side, holding the towel and fresh robes. Or he may take the opportunity to wipe down the teacher's sandals. After the teacher has dried himself, he wraps the towel around his waist and the attendant squats down and tugs the wet bathing cloth down and puts it in a pail of water in order to be washed out. He hands the teacher a clean bathing cloth and lower robe. Afterwards, he collects the teacher's robes and shoulder bag and takes them to the Dhamma Hall in preparation for the evening session in the same way as he did in the morning. Last thing at night, the attendant prepares the teacher's bed. He makes sure there is fresh drinking water, and if the teacher is elderly and there is no toilet in the kuti, he places a spittoon by the bed, which he will empty in the morning. In the cold season, he lays out blankets. If the kuti lacks mosquito screens, he prepares the mosquito net. If he has the necessary skill, he may offer the teacher a massage. Finally, when all the teacher's needs have been met, the attendant bows three times and leaves him to rest. For a number of years, the monk considered to be foremost in the practice of service to the teacher at Wat Bapong was Ajahn Rungrit. In those days, Lung Po would usually go to bed in the early hours of the morning and would get up at about five. I would offer him water for washing, hot and cold, and toothwood. To begin with, I'd just offer some water for him to wash his face and rinse out his mouth. But in later days, I'd ask to take his false teeth away to clean. As for helping him put on his robes, washing them, applying medicinal cream to his body, making his bed and so on. If you could do a good job, he'd let you do it. If you did it awkwardly, he'd rather you didn't bother. Sometimes he'd throw you out. He wouldn't like to tell people to do personal things for him. He'd never tell you to clean his false teeth for him 
or empty the spittoon full of his urine. Nor would he tell you to wash his feet or wash his robes. He would never say anything like that. But if any of his disciples were devoted to him and wanted to perform the duties towards the teacher as are laid down in the texts, and that monk had a certain competence, then he would give permission. A great contemporary of Lung Po Cha, Lung Po Li, gave one of the most memorable accounts of service to the teacher. The precision, the attention to detail expected of him, would be recognized by any of the disciples of Lung Po Cha. To be able to stay with Lung Po Man for any length of time, you had to be very observant and very circumspect. You couldn't make a sound when you walked on the floor. You couldn't leave footprints on the floor. You couldn't make a noise when you swallowed water or opened the windows or the doors. There had to be a science to everything you did, hanging out the robes, taking them in, folding them up, setting out the sitting mats, arranging bedding, everything. Otherwise, he'd drive you out even in the middle of the rains retreat, and then you'd just have to take it and try to use your powers of observation. Every day after our meal, I'd go to straighten up his room, putting away his bowl and robes, setting out his bedding, his sitting cloth, his spittoon, his tea kettle, pillow. I had to leave everything in order before he entered the room. When I had finished, I'd take a note of where I had placed things, hurry out of the room and go to my own room, which was separated from his by a wall of banana leaves. I had made a small hole in the wall so that I could peek through and see both Lumpu Man and his belongings. When he came into the room, he'd look up and down, inspect his things. Some of them he'd pick up and move. Others he'd leave where they were. I had to watch carefully and take note of where things were put. The next morning, I'd do it all over again, trying to place things where I had seen him put them himself. Finally, one morning, when I had finished putting things in order and returned to my room to peek through the hole, he entered his room, sat still for a minute, looked right and left, up and down all around, and didn't touch a thing. He didn't even turn over his sleeping cloth. He simply said his chance and then took a nap. Seeing this, I felt really pleased that I had attended to my teacher to his satisfaction. Lodgings In the Sangyutta Nikaya, Chapter 16, Sutta 1, the Buddha exhorted the monks, we will be content with any lodging whatsoever. We will speak in praise of being content with any lodging whatsoever. We will not exhibit any impropriety or do anything unbefitting for the sake of a lodging. Not gaining a lodging, we will not be agitated. Gaining a lodging, we will use it without being enslaved by it, without being infatuated with it, without committing any offence seeing the dangers and discerning the escape. Thus, monks, should you train yourselves. 
most of the kutis at Wat Pa Pong were offered by lay supporters and their families. For the local villagers, raising the money to build even a modest wooden kuti was a once-in-a-lifetime act of merit-making and one that would give them joy for the rest of their lives. Monks were taught to honour the generosity of the kuti's donor by looking after it with great care. Neglect of this responsibility was liable to expose the guilty monk to a blunt admonishment. There is no Sangha police force to keep order in a monastery. No corporal punishment is meted out to poorly behaved monks. When standards in the monastery dipped, Luang Po's appeals were generally to wise shame. Luang Po would point out the conflict between the actions that he was criticizing and the standards expected of one who was subsisting on the generosity of others and had made a commitment to a high level of morality and a rigorous training. Often, he would make comparisons with the great masters of old. On one occasion, towards the end of his teaching career, the state of the monastery's toilets prompted a talk so hard-hitting that afterwards it had the more senior monks reminiscing about the good old days. During the sixth reign, Zhao Kunno of Wat Tebsirin was a royal page. When the king died, he became a monk. The only time he ever left his kuti was to attend formal meetings of the Sangha. He wouldn't even go downstairs to receive lay guests. He lived in his kuti and slept in a coffin. During his entire monastic life, he never went on Tudong. He didn't need to. He was unshakable. All of you go on Tudong until your skin blisters. You go up mountains and then down to the sea. And once you get there, you don't know where to go next. You go blindly searching for Nibbana with your mind in a muddle, sticking your nose in every place you can. And wherever you go, you leave dirty toilets behind you, too busy looking for Nibbana to clean them. In his seamless approach to the training, neglect of the toilets was not a small matter. It was an indication of a worrying lack of mindfulness and responsibility that could not help but infect the other areas of the monk's practice. Don't turn a blind eye to the state of the kutis that you live in and the toilets that you use every day. Lay people from Bangkok, Ayutthaya, all over the country offer funds for our needs. Some send money in the post for the monastery kitchen. We are monastics, think about that. Don't come to the monastery and become more selfish than you were in the world. That would be a disgrace. Reflect closely on the things that you make use of every day. The four requisites of robes, alms food, dwelling place and medicine. If you don't pay attention to your use of these requisites, you won't make it as a monk. In the old days, There were no water toilets. The toilets we had then weren't as good as the ones we use today. But the monks and novices were good, and there were only a few of us. Now the toilets are good, but the people that use them are not. We never seem to get the two right at the same time. People bring new toilet bowls to offer. I don't know whether you're ever going to clean them or not, but there are rats going into the toilets to shit and geckos. Rats geckos and monks all using the place together. The geckos never sweep the place out and neither do the monks. You're no better than they are. 
Ignorance is no excuse with something like this. The situation with regard to dwelling places is especially bad. The goodies are in a dreadful state. It's hard to tell which ones have got monks living in them and which are empty. There are termites crawling up the concrete posts and nobody does anything about it. It's a real disgrace. I went on an inspection tour shortly after returning to the monastery and it was heart-rending. I feel sorry for the lay people who've built these goodies for you to live in. Everything you use in this life are supports for the practice. Venerable Sariputta kept wherever he lived immaculately clean. If he found somewhere dirty, he would sweep it with a broom. If it was during arms round, then he'd use his foot. The living place of a true practice monk is different from that of an ordinary person. If your kutti is an utter mess, then your mind will be the same. Taking care of the buildings in the central area of the monastery was not only a duty, but also a means to propagate the Dhamma. By living frugally, practicing contentment and maintaining high standards of cleanliness, monks could inspire the laity without saying a word. Make this a good monastery. Making it good doesn't require so much. Do what needs to be done. Look after the kutis and the central area of the monastery. If you do, lay people who come in and see it might even feel so inspired by religious emotion that they realize the Dhamma there and then. Don't you feel any sympathy for them? Think of how it is when you enter a mountain or a cave, how that feeling of religious emotion arises and the mind naturally inclines towards Dhamma. Think about the lay people. The Buddha made it clear in a number of his discourses that while the merit accruing to those that make offerings to the Sangha depends to a large degree on the purity of their own intentions, it is also affected by the mindfulness and integrity of the monks who make use of them. In the Sangyutta Nikaya, chapter 12, Sutta 22, he said to the monks, Therefore, monks, stir up energy to gain what has not yet been gained to attain that which has not yet been attained, to realize that which has not yet been realized, thinking, in this way, our going forth will not be barren, but fruitful and fertile. So too, the alms food, lodging, and medicinal requisites we use will bring those who have offered them great fruit and great benefit. Thus, monks, should you train yourselves, perceiving one's own benefit, monks, one should exert oneself heedfully. Perceiving the benefit to others, monks, one should exert oneself heedfully. Perceiving the benefit to both, monks, one should exert oneself heedfully. When admonishing the Sangha, Luang Po constantly encouraged them to remember the sacrifices being made for them by the lay supporters and their duties towards them. Referring to an extravagant use of cloth, he said, if these lay people were to see, just think how disheartened they'd be. No matter how poor we are, whatever the hardships might be, we still manage to buy cloth to offer the monks, but they're living like kings, really good cloth 
without a single tear in it, is thrown away all over the place. They would lose all their faith. He was not above a certain amount of emotional manipulation. In a culture in which demonstrating appreciation for the help one receives in life is given such emphasis, these kind of reminders were extremely powerful. Again and again, the message that he drummed into his disciples was, you are all living here, supported by the faith and generosity of lay Buddhists. It is your responsibility to honor that faith by practicing with sincerity. Not doing so is creating very bad gamma indeed. Optimum Consumption one of the most important skills monks at Wat Pong were expected to develop in the first years of their training was the ability to judge the right amount, not too much and not too little, the optimum amount when consuming the requisites. Reflections on wise use of the requisites were included in the morning and evening chanting sessions to provide regular reminders. Too much of anything meant sensual indulgence and the accumulation of defilement. Too little was a fruitless asceticism. The task was to find the golden mean. It wasn't easy, and every now and then, junior monks could feel a sudden surge of resistance. If anything was likely to lead to a fierce dhamma talk from Lung Po, it was heedless use of the requisites. If the food left over in your bowl is enough to provide at least three or four lay people with a meal, then things have gone too far. How is someone who has no sense of moderation going to understand how to train his mind? When you're practicing sitting meditation and your mind's in a turmoil, where are you going to find the wisdom to pacify it? If you don't even know basic things, like how much food you need, what it means to take little, that's really dire. Without knowing your limitations, you'll be like the greedy fellow in the old story who tried to carry such a big log of wood out of the forest that he fell down dead from its weight. How much is enough? Is this too much? Is this too little? These were questions that monks were to ask themselves constantly in their use of the requisites. The ability to recognize the optimum amount in any situation and to keep to it together with sense restraint and wakefulness, were declared by the Buddha to be the three apannaka, or always relevant virtues, and they were a favorite basis for Luang Po's Dhamma talks to the Sangha. You aren't what you eat. Vegetarianism can be a vexed subject in Buddhist circles. In Theravada Buddhism, eating meat is considered unobjectionable as long as one has not killed the animal oneself or played a direct part in its death. The Buddha did not forbid monks to eat meat dishes, provided they were sure that no animal was killed specifically to provide those dishes for them. Having said that, ten kinds of meat are prohibited. That of human beings, elephants, horses, dogs, Snakes, lions, tigers, leopards, bears, and hyenas. Consumption of such meats was either socially unacceptable in the India of the Buddha's time 
or else considered dangerous to the consumer. Apparently, the odor that would be emitted by his body would tell wild creatures that he was an enemy. A key ideal of the mendicant lifestyle is that monks should be easy to look after, grateful for whatever they are offered and not fussy about food. If a person puts meat into a monk's bowl on arms round, the monk is expected to accept it out of respect for the act of generosity. Whether or not he eats it is up to him. The Buddha considered vegetarianism in the Sangha to be a matter of personal choice and refused to make it compulsory. There is evidence in the discourses that on occasion he himself consumed meat, most famously the pork dish that he accepted from the blacksmith Chunda, which was the immediate cause of his death. Luang Por adopted this even-handed stance towards vegetarianism. He himself ate meat, as did most of his disciples. In the 1980s, a sect appeared in Thailand which set great store by vegetarianism and sought to proselytize its views. It translated passages from Mahayana Buddhist polemics on meat-eating and proclaimed that monks who ate meat were breaking their precepts. Some monks at Wat Bapong, influenced by these pamphlets, renounced eating meat. Subsequently, a certain amount of tension developed between those in the monastery who ate meat and those that did not. Luang Po was asked for his view. His chuckling reply was that neither group was more virtuous than the other. The difference between them was like that between frogs and toads. If someone eats meat and attaches to its taste, then that is craving. If someone who doesn't eat meat sees someone else eating it and feels averse and angry, abuses or criticizes them, and takes what they see as their badness into their own heart, then that makes them more foolish than the person they're angry with. They're also following craving. Luang Po said that monks were free to decide for themselves as to whether or not they ate meat. But whatever they decided, the most important point was that their actions be guided by Dhamma rather than attachment. If you eat meat, then don't be greedy. Don't indulge in its taste. Don't take life for the sake of food. If you're a vegetarian, don't attach to your practice. When you see people eating meat, don't get upset with them. Look after your mind. Don't attach to external actions. As far as the monks and novices in this monastery go, anyone who wants to take on the practice of abstaining from meat is free to. Anyone who just wants to eat whatever is offered can do that. But don't quarrel. Don't look at each other in a cynical way. That's how I teach. Liberation, he told them, was not dependent on what kind of food they put in their body. It was the result of training the mind. Understand this. The true Dhamma is penetrated by wisdom. The correct path of practice is sila, samadhi and banya. If you restrain well the sense doors of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, you will be at peace 
and the wisdom that comprehends the nature of all conditions will arise. The mind will become disenchanted with all lovable and attractive things and liberation will occur. Regarding the debate as to whether the historical Buddha ate meat, he considered the whole argument to be based on a false premise. In fact, the Buddha was neither a meat-eater nor a vegetarian. The Buddha was beyond these kinds of discrimination. As one completely beyond all defilement, it was incorrect to see him as a person who ate this or that kind of food. Ultimately, he was not anything at all, and merely took nourishment into his body at appropriate times. On another occasion, Luang Po related a cautionary tale about a monk who took up vegetarianism unwisely. Eventually, he couldn't manage it as he wished, and he decided that being a novice would be better than being a monk. He'd be able to gather leaves himself and prepare his own food. So he disrobed and became a novice. Everything went as planned, but his defilements remained. He started thinking that being a novice meant that because he ate their rice, he was still dependent on other people. It was still problematic. He saw water buffaloes eating leaves and thought, well, if a water buffalo can survive on leaves, so can I, without realizing the difference. So he gave up eating rice and ate only roots and leaves, seven or eight long bekar pods at a go. But that wasn't the last of it. Now he started thinking, I've become a novice and I'm still suffering. Maybe it would be better to live as a postulant. And so he disrobed. Now he has completely disappeared. That was the end of him.